Welcome to the Teaching Classroom 21, a podcast by The Ever Learner. I'm James, your host. Join me and my guests every week as we discuss, debate and explore the features of a world-class classroom in the 21st century. Welcome to the Teacher in Classroom 21 podcast. I'm your host, James Sims, and joining me live in the studio today is Hannah Wilson. Hannah is the executive head teacher and CEO of Aureus School and Aureus Primary in Oxfordshire, author of the Hopeful Head Teacher. blog, co-founder of the Brilliant Women Ed Movement, volunteer for ActionAid, for whom Hannah recently visited Mozambique, and helped to build two brand new classrooms at the Condolana Primary School. Hannah is also a colleague who is well versed in the work of multi-academy trusts, having spent 10 years working in both SLT roles and the executive head office at Harris Academy. Hannah is also a high quality human being who came to my attention during what many teachers refer to as the Halal Gate incident. When the tabloid press attacked Hannah and her team for their well-established school dinners and dining hall policy. I was deeply impressed at how well Hannah handled that pressure and unwanted attention. Hannah Wilson, welcome to the Teacher in Classroom 21 podcast and today actually TV show somewhat. (laughs) Hi James. (laughs) Really appreciate you being here, seriously, thank you. I'm going to start here, Hannah. Hannah, how was your summer? And please tell us about your Action A trip to Mozambique. How's my summer? My summer has been um, busy. So um, we are opening a second school in a week and a half time. So we had quite a lot to do, either project completion in the first week or so. It's also been a really busy year as our first year of a secondary school opening. So we had quite a lot to clear before we could properly go away and relax. And then people did say to me, so why are you not just going to go and lie on a beach for two weeks and read a book like normal human beings? We did that. I <laughs> had <laughs> um, agreed to do an action aid project um, the year before and ended up deferring it because I had too much going on. And maybe I've got a sick bit in me about not like just doing something crazy in the summer. But for me, it was an opportunity to go away and do something, but properly switch off. So even though we were volunteering and even though we were building and, and sort of like doing quite a lot from a community perspective... Physically, it was very different. And mentally, it was very different. And I was with 20 female teachers from the UK who'd all volunteered to be there. And it just, it really was an, an amazing experience traveling to rural, very deprived part of Mozambique um, and building classroom walls. I saw you in a trench in one photo. I actually still have a hole in my knee from that trench. Um, yeah, we did the foundations. So we, fu- so we fundraised all the money. Um, Action Aid ran the project and then we were working with local builders mm. and we got there on the um, Sunday and had the opening ceremony with the, kind of the elders in the community and all the different stakeholders and the, the Monday morning we went and broke the ground and started putting the foundations in so we really were sort of from the very get-go um, kick-starting the build and they said that in the week we were there they achieved what you'd normally achieve in two months with wow. a team of five people even though we didn't finish, we get a weekly update now from ActionAid. So as when we left it, we had put um, in all the foundations and all the metalwork. I think we were on our third layer of bricks going up. It was, it was game, pick up momentum. 
You mentioned there are 20 women. Mm-hmm. Was it a, a women-only trip, women-specific trip, or accident, or, or it happened it, to be 20 women? It was, it was, it was interesting. Like, men were welcome, but it kind of came out of a partnership with Women Ed. Um, I've done some work with ActionAid over the last couple of years. They come to a lot of our events. We're very aligned in who we are, like mm. shared vision of values. They rebranded and refocused um, last year to, to really do more about empowering girls um, mm. in education across the world. Um, and Mozambique is the third poorest country in the world. Um, only 10% of the country are employed. I find that staggering. No, stunning. Only 40% of um, pupils progress to secondary school. And it's rife with um, sort of like early child marriage and FGM and women haven't got rights. So um, this school was an opportunity for us to do a project. Initially, it was going to be a library because all the research about when you raise literacy um, levels for adults, you then sort of like improve the whole community yeah. experience. But we didn't fundraise quite enough money for the library. But actually, they don't need libraries, they need classrooms. Mm. Like this school had 450 kids and three classrooms. The kids go to school on shifts. And when they're not in the classroom learning, they're outside playing unsupervised. That's an amazing concept. The, sk- the kids go to school in shifts. I mean, what, what does Morning, it actually look like? afternoons. They have 80 kids in the class. Wow. Um, and not enough desks, not enough benches. And the rest of the children are free range outside. Um, it, was, it was completely mind-blowing to see, to be honest with you. So we scooped up all the kids who, was, who weren't in lessons and they became our little helpers and pushed wheelbarrows and helped yeah. us build fences and stuff. So actually, it's I've worked in Tanzania as well. It was much further behind what, what, what I'm used to. But the school also lends its space to a women's circle. So Action A do like girls' leadership projects about the next generation, but they also do closing the gap work on the current generation. So there were 35 adults from probably like late 20s to up to their 60s who had walked eight kilometres to come for a free literacy lesson. Um, and I think that was the, the most powerful thing of the whole trip, like just the gratitude and the hope in the room about the differences they'll be able to make to their own lives, but also to their children's lives as well. How has it affected you, the experience, I mean? I, I don't think I've completely decompressed yet. I think it's one of those situations where you're in it and it's quite intense it's very profound and when we left it was quite emotional and it's taken me a week just to catch up with myself like it was 10 days of getting up at six o'clock in the morning mm. and building and digging and like using muscles you don't normally <laughs> use in the some other days um so we're talking about the legacy and we're talking about how we can continue the partnership and i think that's what the local community really appreciated in their in their farewell speeches and their closing speeches they said about the fact that we had just sent money, we'd actually raised money and gone ourselves and we were working shoulder to shoulder and it wasn't like we were there with the money, giving mm. it to them. It's almost like, and there's an exchange of skills, right? Mm. Because, I mean, to learn to build, it, that that's quite a skill, actually. So this yeah. is not just, the, I, I don't see it as a model of donation from what I understand. It seems much more like an exchange. It is an exchange and I think the five, male local builders <laughs> <laughs> a bit worried about their business <laughs> it was really yeah they were quite quiet for the first few days I see. um and then we had a we had a project um like a build project volunteer ant from um cumbria and he did disclose after a few gins one night that um louis louise the um the site manager had said they were all really nervous about working with 20 women, hmm. but actually we were all really hardworking and they loved us. What a surprise. It's like, but dream, like busting gender <laughs> stereotypes again. I yeah. think it, I'm not saying it would have been wholly different if men had been there, but we had to all learn the skills. There wasn't any pink jobs and blue jobs. There wasn't yeah. any mansplaining, dare I say it. We, we all had to do the hard labour. I've seen a lot of women back off and let the men do the 
the hard work and we do the wheelbarrow work. We, we all got stuck in and we didn't wear any makeup for that week. Like, I think those, it was a very safe space for women to do something completely different to what they yeah. normally do. It actually reminds me of something, uh, I, I won't name the individual because I don't have permission, but a head teacher at an all-girls school once said to me is that in this school, the best computer coder is always a girl in this school. And I, I'm, I have very mixed feelings about single sex education. Mm. I think it can work for some and for others, it, but, mm. it, but it reminds me of that. But what, one of the things I want to pick up on uh, with you, Hannah, is you're clearly driven to support initiatives that improve opportunities for girls and for women. Where does that drive come from for you personally? I, don't, I get asked this quite a lot. I, I don't really know where it came from. I think my mum was self-employed and mm. my mum was the breadwinner. Um, so we were brought up in a house where mum and dad both worked and had their own businesses, but we were quite aware that it was like, it was mum who made most of the money. And my dad's quite a traditional bloke, but he didn't have an ego or an issue with the fact that mum made the money. So, I, so that was the kind of the model I got brought up with, I guess, and did it, didn't really know it was different to a lot of my friend situations. We were brought up like boys. And I say that in a loose sort of speak, but there were no glass ceilings for us. Like we built tree houses, we went water skiing. My dad's my dad had a different sort of like uh, outdoor activity every season. We, we canoed, we skied, we water skied, we did the works. So I think it was just that I don't know, kind of the the grit, the character education. The Wilson family basically don't sit down, don't relax, and get stuck into whatever they do. And I think it was just the, the sort of family ethos really about equality. It was never labelled as such. So I think. It was then when I went to Ghana when I was 19 for the summer doing Mali International. And that was probably my first sort of like out of the white bubble, rural bubble that is Devon. Um, and I ended up reapplying for a different university and different course. And I think I had a bit of an epiphany whilst I was away. Um, and I was going to read English, but I actually ended up changing my degree to post-colonial literature. Mm. Didn't want to study all the funny, dirty white men, which everyone else reads. Um, and this course was quite quirky. So I think that's where my diversity kind of vein came through. And I don't know, I, I, I don't, I can't really pinpoint like one thing, perhaps. I've always been quite bold. Um, so I don't know. So, I mean, picking up on that almost equality wasn't even a, a concept through childhood. Do, do you see that? the same today for a majority of young people? If I ask the question specifically to a majority of girls, or do you, do you still think that's an exception today? I think it depends who you ask and what context they're mm. in, really. Um, between we've, we've got, I've worked in schools with very empowered young women and very empowered young men. Um, and we're doing a lot of work at our school around sort of like boys appreciating the kind of the he for she kind of um, sense. But equally, we've also created a space that's very safe for boys to be emotionally vulnerable. And I think there's stereotyping both ways, isn't there? Um, we've got three or four powerhouse women ed leaders in our yeah. school, so the girls haven't got a chance of, of being shy retiring. Do, do you find that in, in your in your own leadership and your recruitment that the, the women ed aspect, we're going to talk about this at, at length later on, but do, do you find that it, it, it helps that recruitment process? It's, it's, yeah, we've reflected a lot on this. It definitely helps. Like, like You don't go into Twitter and grassroots and volunteering to do stuff to mm. recruit a team. But I've got an amazing network of people who I know. Yeah. Um, statistically, I've only paid for one advert in two years, and I've recruited wow. seventy staff. 
So if you think how much money I'm saving, well, that that's you say. I mean, we. I mean, for for us, it, even as a completely different scaled employer to you guys, mm. for example, we find that really difficult mm. and extortionately no, expensive. We are. We've got a massive talent pool. Wow. I think startup schools appeal to a certain um, psyche mentality of teacher. Of course. I think we're doing things differently around um, well-being and sort of like mental health and that appeals to a lot of people we're doing things differently like we've, we've got non-negotiables we, we don't have any bells we don't have any detentions we don't why do don't you have work. any bells it's great stress we've got watches why do we need bells do you mean we kind of like there's lots of things that jar in schools and we've just made some very simple choices that don't individually seem bold but collectively people think we're really radical and mm. i'm a like really like it's common yeah. sense isn't it why can't you just wear a watch why do you need a bell yeah um, that, that's that it, it's it's probably as good a test of a society as anything as how simple a thing can can actually seem radical yeah right it, it, to, to not have a school bell i don't think is radical at but all how many times have teachers stood under the bell and it jars every single bone in your whole body you don't have radios either because i've spent 15 years b1 to b2 oh, see, can you yeah. come to room 101 i seriously pick up the phone or so it's just little things like that. So recruitment hasn't been an issue, um, but we are a very female heavy staff. So we have reflected on this. Are you comfortable with that personally? I mean, is, is it something well, you, I'm no, sure you like, celebrate it in some ways. We've but got it, a very diverse staff. Yeah. We've got a very flexible staff. So we enable lots of part-time work. But I do think perhaps it puts off some men from going to work with us mm. because they see the gender equality and it's not for everyone. Mm. I also think it's interesting only being key stage three. So if I was going to stereotype, particularly like maths and science teachers, and I think yeah. maths has been our hardest subject to recruit for, a lot of teachers want to teach key stage four. And my SLT are on their knees, like after teaching year seven for a whole year. I, we haven't taught year seven for 10 years because you're used to doing the year 11 intervention work. And it is exhausting teaching younger, media, emotionally, sort of like more engaged young people. Um, I do think our recruitment will evolve as we go into key stage four. And perhaps we'll pick up more men then. So statistically, and this may make some of the men in my building shake, we've only got seven men out of 70. Wow, that's really fascinating. You might expect that uh, in the primary sector, primary, for I've example. Got, primary, I've got three. They're not teachers. I've got a TA and two. Um, a, a three and a staff of how many, if you don't mind? Out of 17. Okay, so, so, we've done, so actually quite positive for the primary model. Yeah. Yeah. The primary model, we're not as diverse as I'd like to be in a, in a kind of a BAMED sense. Mm. We've got a lot of diversity in other ways, um, and we've got some gender parity. In the secondary school, we've got three male assistant heads and then two male teachers and three male support staff. And it is something I'm really conscious of. We're mm. we're boy-heavy school, mm. um, and... We, we're going to have to proactively recruit, I think, some male teachers and leaders to come and join us. It's really interesting. I'm really interested in what you said about perhaps some men feel uncomfortable. I'm, I'm trying to place my mind as a man into into that decision. I, I like to think it would make no difference to me. But perhaps the, perhaps on this level of conversation, the differences are much more subtle, much less conscious than you realise. I don't know whether it would make it... Like I'm, I'm, I'm surmising there myself, but yeah. we've talked about that leadership team, like why are men not applying for mm. our jobs? But in all honesty, we are having men apply, but the women are just blowing them out of the water at interview. And some of our interviews, like, we're all like, please, please, can the male teacher be really good? Please, please, <laughs> we really need them... We, like, we haven't got enough male staff to go on residential trips. But if, if the candidate is best is a woman, then I'm not going to do the positive discrimination and give the man the job. Um, I do think perhaps 
through our networks, we've got more female connectivity in our mm. individual um, yeah. groups. And because we're offering flexibility, we're getting more female applications. So the TES say that you get 17% more applications when you mention flexibility. And we put in all of our adverts and all of our job specs. So about a third of my teaching team have got some sort of variable working pattern. Mm. So that appeals to more women. I think perhaps the mental health and the well-being appeals to a certain type as well. So when you, when you kind of layer it all up, yeah. Perhaps we are creating quite a niche talent I, pool. I, I think you're. I'm, I'm sure you're right on those things too. I, I wonder what the impact of a truly inspirational uh, female lead who is an advocate for for uh, women ed, for example, has. I, I wonder if as well. I, I I haven't been to school, so I genuinely don't know. But I just I just wonder if what you're maybe experiencing is that you there is an over tendency for the best female teachers to apply to you because of that context. I don't know. Like I've, I've got a brilliant team, and everyone mm. brings value. Um, but it is something, and also from a parent point of view, it's interesting. Like all of our parents' evenings, it's the women who rock up, mm. um, and we, I really want to get the dads a bit more engaged. Yeah, sure. Um, and I know you're going to ask me about Halalgate later on, but <laughs> I am. Do you mean it was predominantly men criticising me? And predominantly women supporting me. Do, do you mind if I? Do you mind if I? Because I've got a very specific question about that. That I'm, I'm jumping forward in my list. Sorry, of I'm ten, no, no, no. But, I, but, let, but let, <laughs> let's, let's take this opportunity. One of the things I was really fascinated around that school meals incident, or Halalgate, as you refer to it as, is that you suggested to me that there was a, there was part of the criticism was perhaps because the the school lead you hannah is female how how did it, that come it, about it evolved so basically okay. it started with one parent um complaining about a halal kitchen yeah it then his argument then turned into and we don't allow pat lunches and then it turned into we only allow water and that's what hit the press the, the headline was ridiculous the, headline, the, the one that i saw in the mirror it was yeah. outrageous well, the, the actual local press was fine. So okay. when um, Oxford Mail contacted me the week before May half term and said they were going to run this article um, and would I like to comment, and I gave them quite a bland response about who we are, our food education is really important to us. Mm. They sent me back the copy and it was fine. Like it wasn't, it wasn't inflammatory, and it went live on the Wednesday of half term. And then I was actually ironically having a well-being day at a spa on the Friday and came out floating from the jacuzzi. My phone literally went off. Um, and it hit the national press. And I don't really know. It must have been a very quiet weekend at the Daily Mail. And Trump must have been behaving. So Mail was weekend. first. I, I've read it, in it the mirror. went mi- the Mail to the Daily Mail. Oh, well, Oxford Mail to Daily Mail. Yeah. I've read in, in the Mirror and in the Sun. Oh, it went on every tabloid. Yeah. But by the Sunday, it was in every tabloid. And then it went on the BBC. Um, so it ran the, on the regional BBC all day Monday. And went on to the national BBC on the Tuesday. And we had the BBC TV crew camped outside our school all day Tuesday. It was mm. laughable. Because we serve water, because we have pat, no pat lunches. Like the argument, going back to the argument, no one really knew why they were arguing, and lots of different people had lots of different things to say, but a lot of it was about us, me, taking away choice. But no one had really done their research as to why we'd taken away that choice. And as you alluded to earlier on, there was a misconception that. I'd gone away on the Friday night and changed the policy on the Monday morning mm. without without consulting anyone. This had been our policy for 18 months from the get-go. All the parents knew that. So it's literally from the school opening. We were never going to, yeah, yeah, from the get-go. 
I've done all, I'm, I'm very direct and very transparent at all of our parent contact meetings. It's all been explained. So 119 parents out of 120 were absolutely furious. On Facebook, Hannah has told us this from the beginning. The school have been honest from the beginning. Who is this parent causing this, this kind of stress for the school? It was just one dad who wasn't happy. I'd said to him in October, if you're not happy, choose a different school. We've got a waiting list. Your daughter's lovely. We want her to be here. But he didn't like that. Went to the governor's. Like, the governor's about having a pat lunch. Are you kidding me? And his daughter loves the food and ate three courses every day. Um, so I think it was a bit of a power struggle. Mm-hmm. And then it went viral. And then it became Facebook crazy. Then I got um, hate emails, 70 wow. of them. Then I got hate handwritten letters, 12 of them. Not from anyone in Dickot. I had an anonymous letter from the Daily Star reader in Hull who told me to move countries. Without, without, I, I don't want to go in terms of what was suggested or threatened, but what, what was the, what were the objections coming out? Was, was it to do with, was it to do with halal? Was it to do with gender? Was it to do with you? I mean, a bit of everything. That that we were daring to do things so differently. So it, that it, we were patronising parents by removing choice. I see. That we were fueling um, xenophobia by making the kitchen halal. Which, between, again, do your research, like how many of our supermarkets, how many of our restaurants, how many of our fast food chains are serving us halal meat? Mm-hmm. People don't know what they're eating half the time. So it, it, it was just emotionally exhausting in I'm all sure. honesty. But I suppose the blessing through it all was that it really galvanised our school. Um, our school staff became very st- even stronger. Our parent body were like tiger mummies and backing me on every social media and some of our incoming parents, he works at the Metro, they wrote the counter the counterpiece because they were so angry at the mis- misrepresentation. Um, so, and it's actually made some staff want to come and work with us they didn't know existed, and some parents want to send their kids to us. So, although it was an exhausting week, it's not been detrimental to us. It, it was just laughable mm-hmm. that it went from zero to 100 overnight. There's a couple of points I'd like to raise that I that I noticed. One, one is a word you used, which was misrepresentation. The first headline I ever read about it, which I read a few months back, and I read again, it's probably still open my computer next door. It was, school only serves water and halal meat. That was the headline. <laughs> yeah, here's your chicken and here's your glass of water. Yeah. That's all you're having to I read that and I thought, just, I mean, for me, having spent time in a school canteen, conceptually it was odd. <laughs> So, so we don't have a canteen, James. We have a dining hall. I'm call. sorry, a dining hall. Forgive me. No, but our, it's, for, for us, that's such an important point, isn't it's, it? It's you, you're doing it right. Ethos, and we all sit down on round tables as a family and Good use a knife and fork. I have spent 15 years in South London with kids eating five bits of chicken off a plate with their hands, wiping it on their jeans after playing football for 29 minutes, a warm minute before the bell goes wrong. Like it's food is should be part of the school curriculum, and it's not in a lot of schools. Um, and for a lot of our kids, we've got like 33% PP. That's their only hot meal of the whole day. Um, and the parents said, oh, my child doesn't drink water. They will at our school. My child doesn't eat this, that and the other. They will at our school. Give it a week so next to their mates. They will eat chicken chow mein because everyone else is eating chicken chow mein. So I think it's, for me, a school isn't just about getting exams. It's about the life skills, the social skills, the cultural skills. And that's what we do really, really well. And that, and that is actually, in a nutshell, my second point. I've spent a lot of 
I spend a lot of time in schools, a lot of time in colleges, and one of the things I feel is too free, or far too frequently overlooked, is the con- is the culture of health, specifically eating and hydrating mm. within a school. And I, I, I haven't been to your school, so I don't know what it feels like exactly mm. in the dining hall, but I'm sh- I'm sure it's really pleasant. I applaud you to my core that you took that on. Now, people can argue stylistically whether it should be this thing, there should be pack lunch or whatever, and I mean obviously that's that's your school decision, that's fine. But I, I I really, really appreciate a leader and a colleague who's willing to tackle that conversation. Never mind the halal mm. thing, but is willing to tackle the conversation about health and nutrition for young people at school. Thank you, James. And there's a layer also which we haven't really shouted about, but from a from an environmental point of view, I find it staggering how much waste there is in schools from the cans, the bottles, the sandwich boxes. We don't have any of that because we don't do any of that kind of food. So our kids only drink water. They have to have a water bottle. We have cold water distillers throughout the school. So that significantly reduces our litter. And we only serve food that's plated. So from from a green point of view, actually, there's a lot of... There's a, there's a, sorry. There's a lot... There's um, a whole positive impact environmentally from this as well. Yeah, it, it, it's really fascinating. What, what was the impact on you, Hannah? I mean, if you if 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 you go to the middle of that week and perhaps a week later, how how, was, how were you? It, 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 I was fine. It was it was exhausting. It was emotionally draining. Um, and I think I lasted a week without crying, and then just one day, between something stupid, I was just I was just knackered. I burst into tears at work, and I'm doing. I do cry quite easily, but I wasn't I wasn't going to cry because of that. Um, but it was more of a I'm just like absolutely exhausted, sort of like teary moment. Um, I, I think what I found the most startling was it did completely split the audience. I say all the time, I'm Marmite, our school's Marmite. I love Marmite. So you're going to love us or you're not going to love us. But if you don't love us, choose a different school. It's quite simple. Um, but the yes, I was overwhelmed by the negativity, but I was equally overwhelmed by the positivity. And I had bouquets of flowers from people I didn't know. I had letters and phone calls from her teachers around the country. Um, I had personal messages and presents and stuff sent to me from people who I do know but don't know. And I think, it, I think it, was it Jeff Barton? Someone very prolific on Twitter, I think it might have been Jeff, um, said that it's opportunities like this that really show you how united we are as a profession. And you know that all the nonsense on Twitter about, are oh, you a trad, are oh, you a prog? I don't get involved in all that. But everyone downed their tools and actually just pulled together. Um, and I got quite a lot of positivity about um, the blog I wrote about it all. I don't take things lying down. I wasn't going to stay at home and be upset and worried about it. I, I, everyone else is saying their piece and I wanted to get what was the truth, our truth, out there. That had 13,500 hits, which is just crazy. That's great. Crazy. Um, and off the back of that, I think I had 30 disclosures from other head teachers around the country who had been totally victimised by the local or regional or national press, just saying, like, well done for um, tackling it, because we need to. Otherwise, they're going to carry on treating us like this. Well, I have to say, while in many ways I don't want the incident, well, there was actually not much of an incident. It's, really quite, laughable. Was there. it's yeah. quite laughable now, back in May <laughs> yeah. when we were in the Daily Mail. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't really want it to be the focus of this conversation, but what I do want to say to you is I personally found it inspiring. 
as some as someone who in a completely different context has you know challenges at work and has difficult days and i'm sure anyone listening and watching this will have a you know have those difficult days. i personally found the way it was dealt with really inspirational and it's actually whilst there's many other things to discuss with you hannah really inspirational things it's actually the trigger that caused me to contact you because i thought i need to speak to this person because if they handle something as tough as that that well I really want to know more about them. Thank you. And I think ultimately, would I have handled it in the same way three years ago, pre-women ed? Perhaps not. Would you handle it the same way today? I'd handle it the same way now. Yeah. Um, but I think sort of like pre-women ed, I've always been pretty confident and quite sort of like bold, but we've really found um, over the last couple of years a very supportive community which you really draw strength from i'm very conscious and aware of that that i'm a role model to others people i don't even know because when you're on twitter and talking at events you you are whether you want to be or not mm. um and with that comes responsibility and we talk all the time at our events and online about sort of like finding your voice and using your voice and sort of like not not scaring being scared away by things mm. and I wouldn't have been being true to myself or true to us if I'd just sort of like taking that line down. I think the easier route would have been to go into my cave for a week and come back a week later and pretend it was all not happening. But I would have had respect for myself if I'd done that. Well done, Hannah. Seriously. Inspirational stuff. Let's hope it doesn't happen again. <laughs> there's, there's always something around the corner. Maybe, maybe, that is a bit extreme to be another one around the corner. You never, you never know. But let, let's move to Women Ed here. I mean... I think from my perspective, what I really want the viewer and the listener to hear about is is initially about your experience of being a co-founder. Of course, we spent time chatting to Jill as well, who's legendary in yeah. my book. Um, I'd like to ask you a bit about being a co-founder. And I'd also like you to bring us with women Ed, to to whether there's an end game for the movement. What's it trying to, that's a really what's good it trying question. to achieve? That, well, that's a really good question. Um, so co-founding was one of those things that kind of happened to us. It was a sequence of different random things. It wasn't like we all woke up that Easter four years ago and said, oh, let's let's start a grassroots movement. Um, it was um, an article, a, a blog by um, Helena Marsh and a blog mm. by Jill Berry, Dr. Jill Berry, which instigated a lot of chat on social media, which then kind of spiralled into a series of blogs on what was Staff Room, a brilliant blogging community. And literally seven strangers came together um, over a weekend on social media. We didn't know we were all secondary school teachers. We didn't know we were all English teachers, which is random. But, but you literally met physically? Yeah, you... No, it's, it's all virtual. Okay. Um, and we started a conversation about like how are we going to harness this interest? So then we initiated a meetup and I got all of our postcodes and worked out where was equidistant. So we met... Um, it always ends up in Coventry, right? <laughs> <laughs> but randomly, we ended up in Bracknell. Bracknell, um, okay. Having a cup of tea at the Hilton because um, we could all get off the, our motorways there. And literally had a chat about, like, what is this? Like, what can we do with this? And we just decided to, to start a Twitter handle. That's all it was. Let's just start a Twitter handle and just share some gender equality um, articles and get a conversation going. That was um, in the May. And we tweeted out... It's 2014. 2014, yeah. yeah, it's our fourth our fourth year this year. Um, we tweeted out, we think we might host like a little event. Like, I knew women out there interested in coming to talk about gender equality. Anyone got an empty school? And it just 
sort of spiralled from there. So Microsoft picked it up, offered us a free venue, offered us wow. free catering, free tech support. We're like, oh, God, this is really easy. <laughs> <laughs> we chose a date. And then 200 people came together um, at the Microsoft head office um, in Victoria. And it it all kind of snowballed really, really quickly. It, and it, we didn't really know who we were or what we were, but there was quite a lot of excitement. And the the first event was just amazing. I don't think we're ever going to... like Every event's exciting, but that event really... You, you could really feel a, kind mm. of a, a palpable kind of energy in the room. Um, and then we sat down post that event and kind of took stock and... Like, who are we? Like, what are we trying to achieve? This has all got a bit big a bit quickly. All got full-time jobs. Um, so we then put out for volunteers and we recruited 40 regional volunteers and and tried to make more of a regional, local offer as opposed to going for, like, bigger national Which events. often make a big difference yeah, as well. Yeah, and also it's not about the seven of us doing all the work. It's about creating opportunities and the volunteers develop their leadership skills by... Absolutely. So it's that distribution and sort of, like, we are a collective. We are a, a soft community. No one's in charge. No one's getting paid. No one's dictatorial. Um, so it kind of evolved from there. It's just picked up momentum and picked up momentum. For the first couple of years, it was very much kind of the girls are doing it for themselves. And then we got, got a bit more um, traction from kind of the wider educational sphere. We presented at um, the Education Festival, Research Ed. Um, we've done some, some consulting with Charter College and the DfE. And I think, I think initially people probably thought it was a bit faddy or a bit whimsical, but then they realised we were here to stay. And once you get past your kind of your ten thousand followers, and well, now we're at twenty thousand, the the naysayers and yeah. the trolls began to quieten down. Because I think in the beginning there was quite a lot of negativity, quite a lot of friction. Again, it was but, Marmite. It's a bit of the audience. Hmm. We had a lot of haters, but on, on the basis of this isn't necessary type yeah, of hating, or, or? on the basis of anyone having an excuse to have an argument about anything, yeah. we're a female heavy profession. Why do we? Why do we need more women? Hmm. Um, like sort of like the the anti-feminist um, movement, but also yeah. the women who hadn't had any support and didn't know why people would need support. The, the Margaret Thatchers of the world, the kind mm. of the shut, shut the door when, rather than bring people up with you. So, um, yeah, so it kind of, kind of just picked up. And then a year ago, a year and a half ago, we got a lot of interest beyond the UK. So, we, so I went over to um, Banff and launched Women Ed Canada. We've got Women Ed US um, picking up momentum, Women Ed Italy. Um, wow. So what's interesting, so when I went to Banff, I was um, at a three-day leadership residential um, and it was 1,200 and a mixed audience. And that was the biggest event I'd spoken at about Women Ed. But also it wasn't necessarily a warm audience because we were on the main stage in a different country, mixed audience. Not everyone wanted to hear about Women Ed. But Patty Solberg was on our um, panel as a he for she and he used the data really, really well to hook in those who might say we're not needed. And when he compared all the global contextual data about the state of the world when it comes to women and girls, um, that just left everyone very quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't you can't really argue with Patty Solberg using sort of like the data the data to tell you why we need it. Yeah. Um so yeah, it's, so going back to your original question, what's the end game? I don't know. Like a few people have said to me in the last year, like you've got so much going on, are you are you going to like stop doing women ed? And I got asked to interview, like how do I square my two jobs 
It's like, well, women it's not a job. It's it's a hobby. It's something I've wanted. It's a philosophy, to. right? It's, it's a philosophy. Yeah. And like what I say, because people kind of dip in and out of it, depending on where you're at in your life, personally, professionally, it's it's there for you to access, but there's no pressure for you to be constantly accessing it. And it's now kind of got a life of its own. Um, and it's about everything in balance, isn't it? About how many events you want to go to and how involved you want to be. I've met amazing people for it. Um, I travelled to Mozambique because of it. So, do you mean, why would I stop doing something that's mm. very much part of who I am? Um, and whilst I'm still enjoying it, I'll, I'll carry on. Good, good for you. And I, I mean, we, we spoke at length uh, with Jill and, and she, she made very similar comments. Uh, she talked a lot about the impact on her and also for her, uh, it, was, it was a lot about sharing and the distribution oh. of that experience, which I think is, is wonderful to see. Did, did Women Ed start before Baymed or was it the way around? I can't actually remember now. We started first. But Women Ed was first. Baymed's only two years old. Oh, Baymed's only two so years. So Women Ed's four years old, Baymed's two years old, LGBT Ed's a year old yeah. and Disability Ed's coming. Um, Baymed kind of got born from Women Ed because mm. we've got, we obviously had a mixed audience and we mm. tried to get conversations going about diversity and only four or five people came at some of our bigger events. And Alana, who's the co-founder with Amjad, who works with me, um, she was one of our regional leaders and intersectionality was becoming more and more topical. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big advocate of it, but it's. I think there's quite a Venn diagram of overlapping communities. So we had an event at my place last year called Diverse Educators because my deputy head wears all the labels. Does she need to go to four events? Today I'm going to be BAME. Today I'm going to be a woman. Today I'm yeah, going to be yeah, LGBT. So that actually, we, we don't compartmentalise ourselves into these boxes. Mm. So we host an event and it was brilliant where we brought all the grassroots diversity and equality together. Mm. And then we also went to the DFE for a round table with Nick Gibb about trying to coordinate and make it more coherent about what's going on nationally. And I guess ultimately these movements exist are necessary and beneficial because we have a such a tradition of patriarchy and, and, and segmented power and authority in our society. And I, I, I think it's very easy to have the thought of it shouldn't be necessary or, but actually in that historical context, the reality is it is necessary. It's very necessary. And if you think about the power of the network and the old boys network in particular, and I mean, I, I, I do lots of presentations about networking and being yeah. outward facing. Other professions, there is an expectation that you will network. There is an expectation that part yeah. of your professional identity is to go to conferences and go to dinner parties and meet people. And it's not part of the teaching profession. But why not? Because actually, mm. we can spend our whole day in our classroom, in our school, not talking to other human beings, not sharing ideas. Does Women Ed have ambitions for International Women's Day? We all. do stuff every year. Yeah. So how does that how does that work? Well, International Women's Day is a is a global date which anyone yeah. can eight, celebrate. Eight March. Eight March. Yeah. Um, so we always host events around the country on International Women's Day. And internationally, this is an enormous event. It's massive. It's huge. Massive. We're basically doing International Women's Day on a on a weekly, monthly basis. Sure. Um, but we are. I've been in contact with them this week about um, doing something a bit more partnership based with them this year so we always use their hashtags and their theme so last year their theme was be bold for change that's the year before this year it was press for progress mm-hmm. so we always sort of like get onto their onto their um sort of like mission statements but the thing is like going back to what's saying about canada what i found fascinating was it was exactly the same conversation it was exactly the same testimonials and narratives and barriers and challenges um and 
your gender identity, your professional identity as a teacher, doesn't matter what country you're in, mm. it's, it's quite similar. Yeah. And I think that, and that was quite interesting. I want to ask you a tough question here, Hannah. I, I'm not even totally sure it's a fair question, but I'm, like, I, I, I'm genuinely interested in your opinion on this. In fact, I'm going, to, I'm going to read it to you because I, I, I wrote it with a very careful wording, so I'm going to read it to you. Do, do you believe that today in the UK there is a quality of opportunity for boys and girls? In the classroom, in society, in at large? I, I think I mean broadly. Do, do you think we've re- reached a theoretical equality? Theoretically, there is in the mm. UK. It's whether or not um, everyone knows it or takes advantage of it, I guess. Like, going back to what I was saying about my childhood, I mean, I think different family setups, different households, different communities, mm. there are definitely still barriers. Mm. And when you look at the data about the number of girls taking science A-levels compared to the number of women going into the science profession, there are still very much glass ceilings there. Mm. But what we talk about at Women Ed is, are those glass ceilings self-imposed or society-imposed? So it's almost it's almost like we've got to a position of theoretical opportunity, maybe even theoretical equality of provision, but the, but the, but the equality of esteem is is still a work in progress yeah but um, i'm fascinated by all the um dove research the mm. self-esteem project yeah. and I mean, i've done a lot of work with them two of my friends used to be the brand directors in america every single school uses that um, project yeah. and in the uk we don't um and i did some work with them making it more sort of like school friendly and it's all about girls between age seven and nine lose their Mm self-confidence and there's an assumption or presumption at secondary school that it happens when they go through puberty no when when we get them at 12 13 it's Mm -hmm. already done and i'd done a lot of reading on it but then i saw it happen before my eyes with my niece and she literally turned eight and lost all her confidence and she went from being this confident girl who would climb trees and would be sort of like out with the boys holding her own doing quite physical stuff to just like retreating into herself that's and very interesting it was really interesting and i talked to my sister about it at length um and it was a confidence issue and i'm and at the moment i'm doing some research into oracy and i'm looking at why sort of like boys are more confident in the classroom and talk more than girls in the classroom so i've been doing a research project with our year sevens but my nephew's in year eight and my niece is in year five so i thought it'd be really interesting to interview them as comparisons and it was just fascinating listening to my very confident nephew who will happily get up an assembly and read a poem and and doesn't care if he makes any mistakes um and then talking to my niece who is so worried about making mistakes so i think there's a, a deeper thing for us to to work on there and that's where we're trying to strike the balance of women ed about empowering our peers and sort of working with women who are our generation about closing the gap but also making sure that we're we're changing the narrative moving yeah. forward. What legacy are we creating in our, in our own schools? That's uh, it's really fascinating. We, we, um, I say we because Marta, my partner, is a little over here. Uh, we, we have two daughters, and it's it's a conversation that runs through my mind fair, fairly frequently about what are the specific features of the equality that we experience today. Because I think it's very easy to assume equality. I very frequently see equality, and I think mm. that's something we we should be proud. We've moved much closer towards. Mm. But I do feel that the quality of esteem is some way off. And I, I include the glass ceiling effect. I include uh, the range of role models. I include the conversations we all hold from a very, very early age in children's lives mm. and what we may inadvertently, subconsciously encourage them towards and away yeah. from. And the comments we use and yeah. all that research about we compliment girls and how they look and boys and what they do and yeah. all the gender cheese stuff about T-shirts in the supermarkets. It, we're opening the primary school next week and thinking about 
about uniforms been really interesting at both schools. And I was reading an article in one of the early years magazines about if we encouraged more girls to wear trousers or shorts in the early years, they 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 lose their inhibitions. Mm. Whereas as soon as they start wearing skirts and become more conscious of their gender, they sit differently, they behave differently in, in primary school. I, I thought that was really interesting that, yeah, that is gender interesting. is a social construct yeah. and we are we are disabling or encouraging inhibitions in some ways. That's a fascinating conversation. It's probably one we don't have much time for today, but that how does how does gender truly represent itself to what degree is it a biological and sociological condition i find that a true mm. and I, I, my mind changes on that quite regularly mm. not not comp- not from not from extreme to extreme but uh, within that ongoing reflection is something i really find fascinating i think in the, in the world we live in today where you know the influence of that sort of french philosophical movement of the individual from the 60s uh, it's coming to fruition today where you can literally be anything you want to be. Yeah. And I'm, I, I think it's fascinating how people are applying that. Mm. And also the reaction, well, gets, sometimes very aggressive yes. reaction. Well, I've, been, I've been following all the, all the pride fallout between the LGBT community yeah. and the, the, the kind of the trans community. And our keynote speaker last year at the Diverse Educators was Claire Birkinshaw, who was, I, I believe, one of the first openly trans head teachers to go through um, transition. And she, she's just such a powerful speaker. And she just shared, we went for dinner the night before, she shared some really interesting anecdotes. And the one that really stays with me is that she's got growing up children who are at university. And she was speaking at an event and her, I think it was her daughter was with her. And one of the local politicians was trying to be politically correct and asked the daughter how it felt for her mother to be speaking. And the daughter said, no, that's my dad. Oh, but she's a woman now. Yeah, but she's still my dad. I've got a mum. And it's and it's just interesting. That, mm. like, that just blows, blows your mind about yeah. the people trying to do the right thing, not knowing yeah. what they can and can't say, but yeah. actually it's your body's this, but your sexuality's this and your gender identity's we, we, this. We kind of haven't been trained for this. In, no. It, our, our society is not broad as to, to we, we, I think we have a, to a degree, a, a binary code, I mean, a, or a binary indoctrination in the way mm. we think. And I think that that A-O-B, is yeah. somewhat outdated in, mm. the, in, the, in, the, in the modern era. Um, one of the phrases I, I hear you talk about, Hannah, is the concept of value-led leadership. What is that and how do you apply it through your work? So, so it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know that question at interviews and what kind of a leader are you? <laughs> um, and you always, people always come out with their kind of like list of things you do and don't say. And I had like a sample of this. It was, it was actually through Sue Webb. So um, I went on quite a journey as assistant head, as a deputy head, and I wasn't mentally really so in the place to be a head teacher three, four years ago, I was looking to relocate and looking for a sideways move. And then I had a lot of coaching, talking to people like Jill. And I, and I realised that perhaps I was ready to be a head, but I wasn't ready to be the head in the in the mould of what I was experiencing in, in South London where I was working. So I started doing lots of research into different leadership styles. And I, there's lots of different ways of calling it ethical leadership, principled mm. leadership, value leadership. And Sue Webb's one of our community who's a former primary head and she's a consultant for VBE. And she had shared quite a lot on Twitter. And I sort of followed her, started looking into it. And Dr. Neil Hawkes, who founded VBE, um, did his whole 
doctorate um, looking at values-led school models. It just really resonated. It was like a light bulb moment that suddenly I saw the kind of leader I was being defined, I suppose, on paper. Mm. So I read his book. I've met, I've had the pleasure of meeting him a few times now. And then it made me realise, actually, that's the kind of head I wanted to be. That's the kind of school I wanted to work in. So when I then decided I was looking for headship, I was looking for opportunities to be authentic, to be the kind of the, the leader I wanted to be rather than wedge myself into someone else's kind of mould. Mm-hmm. And that's why the startup founding headship model, even though it's harder, I believe, um, there's a lot more sort of like to get your head around a lot quicker. I saw that as an opportunity to do things a little bit differently. I've worked in lots of turnaround schools where it's always about year 11. It's always about the catch up game. It's always about the kind of the intervention and to not have that pressure for a few years to be able to make some different decisions at Key Stage 3 and to grow that culture and ethos from scratch. That's That was kind of my my motivation really but would i even find your values in your building so you were involved in in the design and the uh, well it's interesting when you when you become the startup head but the designs were signed off three years before you I were see. appointed um I've, we've got a beautiful building our school is absolutely gorgeous i was uh, a consultant on some of the aesthetics so we haven't yet splashed them all over because i love mary Myatt's quote about values aren't laminated they're lived and I don't want us to fall into the trap of we need to have our 12 values painted on every wall if we want to remember them. Our, yeah. our kids know what our values are. Our, yeah. our they staff feel them almost. Yeah, we, we've got a very strong culture and ethos. It's all values led. Um, we have lots of daily, weekly tasks. It's constant drip feed, drip feed, drip feed. And I think the difference is, is that because we've designed the school from scratch and we've co-created it from scratch, all of those things aren't being shoehorned in or they're not being put on as frames to evidence something they've been part of the thread from the beginning and it, it, all those jigsaw pieces then come together so it is palpable the the children can tell you very eloquently and confidently what our 12 values are um and we're going into year two so it's now about embedding and deepening that understanding um and really think about how the values show up in the building that's fantastic and i mean if i may in in, in an educational climate today which can be pressurizing it's quite changeable there's even some fads out there for you what are the what what are the most essential values for you, for you as a leader what what do you want to come out first second and so third that's an interesting question so pre post my appointment pre my team started i'd recruited them i had in my head what my core values were and i had what my value what values i wanted to stamp on our school um and then when Sue and I sat down and talked about how to value scope the, the staff body, she quite delicately said to me, you've, you've got quite strong opinions. Like, how prepared are you to relinquish some of your values? And I was like a little bit horrified. Like, well, like why would I be relinquishing this to you? She goes, because like, your school values need to reflect your whole community. So from your list, you, you need to distill down to your core. So I had the 10 that I was quite keen on. Um, and then when we all came together for a whole day just thinking about our values and we start we started like macro and went down drill down as the day progressed I basically held on to the three that I wanted to be part of our core mm-hmm. and then the other nine came from the wider community and it was interesting because my my three I think probably had recruited most of my staff anyway mm-hmm. and the diversity equality and well-being so I mean we're a steam school we were a stem school we've made it a steam school in a single sex local environment we're very boy heavy and 
we want to make sure that we are modeling that you don't have to be a white boy to be a scientist and we're we're doing lots around kind of diversity diversity of our team the community so that's that's key i've got openly gay staff who've done assemblies about their sexuality like mm. just taking off some of those um inhibitors equality do you mean like i couldn't have a school without equality being up sort of like first and foremost but it's it's fascinating when you hear mirror back to you what you said in assembly. So I can remember just dropping into assembly about six months ago, saying about social equality and pay the pay gap, and about the fact that everyone in our building was paid the same, whatever their level. And one of the boys has really hold on to this, and then he he asked me in a separate conversation six months later. So Miss, in our school, like the cleaners paid the same amount of money as the head teacher, aren't they? I said, what do you, what do you mean? And she said. Oh, you know, he said, um, in assembly, he said, everyone gets paid the same. I said, no, they get paid the same, no matter what their gender is, for their tier. We haven't got everyone being paid the same salary. So it's, it's interesting conversations like yeah. that. And then the well-being one, because we know it's an issue um, in society, in our schools. It is an issue. The staff right. well-being, the parent well-being, the pupil well-being. We have got a whole um, curated provision um, about our mental health and our well-being, and we're very much focusing on like proactive, preventative, preemptive work rather than reactive work. I've spent, like I said, fifteen years um, working with Year Elevens at Crisis Point um, mm. at interview, um, at, sorry, at exams. Um, so we're doing daily stuff and weekly stuff to to prevent that from exploding, as opposed to um, the kind of the two weeks yoga because you're because you're anxious about your exams. Yeah. So they they were the three for us. And then we've How got lucky the those kids are. How fortunate they are. I think that's great. I mean, that, 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 those values, equality, diversity, well-being. I mean, that, that, you can plant that in any walk of life. Right. You you can place that on any organization and it makes a positive benefit. If you if, if those children and those students are, influ- are experiencing that day after day after right. day after day and it, and it integrates with them and who they are as individuals... So I I'll think tell you what's super powerful. What's really interesting, do you mean, is that it really helps dialogue and it really helps reflection and rewards, but it actually really helps behaviour and sanctioning. Mm, so, do you mean, I've been ahead of year, I've been assistant head of deputy head, I've done all these difficult conversations where you're isolating a child or excluding a child and you don't always get the parents agreeing with the, with the sanction. When you have a phone call or a meeting or a letter and you say your child has been sanctioned because they contravene, contravened the value of love or they've contravened the value of respect, yeah. there's no arguing with yeah, it. It's hard to argue with that. So right. I think it, it, it almost softens the message sometimes. Yeah. It, our expectations are really crystal clear. And to show me a parent who doesn't want their child to embody some some sort of key human values when they leave. Absolutely. It's, it's magnificent, Hannah. I, I'm incredibly grateful to you today it may or may not show in this video it certainly may be heard in this video (laughs) (laughs) the last five minutes we've had mr clank out there um but um i'm extremely grateful to you today um you're the first person who's uh, been willing or come and sat with us in these chairs and and recorded video with, with us we we have big plans for this initiative we've got things we've got to improve not least that um but I'm extremely grateful to you. I also want to say on a personal level, I find you, the way you speak, the way you represent yourself, the the, the centrality of the values in your work, I personally find those inspirational. As part of me wishes we'd crossed paths earlier uh, when I was when I was working, working down the, the lakes first. <laughs> um, but 
but but I, I really do want to congratulate that. I, I want to repeat as well my congratulation to you for the way that you manage that that difficult period a few months back. I, I do find that inspirational, and um, and 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 finally, I, I just want to I just want to say as well. I, I hope we can we can continue this conversation, and, and I hope this can serve this this resource, whatever it is we've produced today, can can also serve for you to to share some messaging with your with your community, your school community, and broader community. And hopefully this is going to really elevate the, the conversation for anyone who listens or, or, or watches what we've talked about today. And I want to thank you very, very much. Thanks, James.